The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hi. Welcome. Welcome to the Visual Workplace. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm your host. I'm your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the landscape of work through visual devices, how to install the language of our current operational system, of our current level of excellence, even if we're not quite as excellent as we as excellent as we want to be, how to install that into the physical landscape. When we do that, we make our intelligence concrete and specific, and we do it through visual devices, through visual mini-systems and larger systems. And when we do that, we can literally see how we think because it functions. We can predict how that thinking will function because we've captured it in visual devices. Fantastic. And why do we bother? Because we get these incredible bottom-line benefits in terms of improved safety, better quality, more aligned delivery time, shrinking costs. And because we have splendid cultural alignment as a result, a spirited and engaged workforce on all levels. All levels. Not just the operator level, not just machinists, not just value-add, but supervisors, managers, your staff, your executives. The enterprise becomes conscious. It becomes connected, fluid aware, self-aware, if you want to call it. This is what we're doing in the visual workplace. And I say to that, oh, wonderful. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) So welcome. And welcome back. Welcome back to myself because I've been away for many, many, many weeks uh, traveling and doing some other things that made it impossible for me to be here with you. I'm back and I'll be here. I'm planning to be uh, without a hitch pretty much through Christmas. And I'm really, really glad to be back. Today we are launching a series that is actually a continuation of what we did in the spring. We're launching the Visual Leadership for Executives series. We did Visual Leadership for the Supervisory Function in the spring. There were 16 shows, I believe, and we included in that group middle managers. And this series that we're starting today will run about that same amount of time. I can hardly wait. I'm really, really, really interested and excited about sharing this with you. I think it'll be helpful. But first, just a few announcements, and we have some exciting ones. We are about to launch our live webinar series. We're going to start that on October 3rd, and we will continue 
I believe we're scheduling it monthly on a host of topics, and we'll be sending out those invites soon. We're also starting a newsletter. One reason is to give you a single place to go to to get the news, including weekly, uh, the weekly announcement about this, my radio show. And another is to include more content on visuality, pictures, and things like that. So that is being prepared even as we speak. And (laughs) the other big thing that we're doing is we're preparing a new website. That's also scheduled to launch by mid-October. So we've been busy. We've been trying to rethink how to get this work that I've been doing for 30, 32 years out to you. And part of that is also the fourth part of my announcement today, which is we are putting all of my work into webinar on-demand format. This is like 92 modules of work, not just work that makes sense, which is a package that we've been offering for two or three years, but also visual machine, visual problem solving, visual lean office, visual hospital, case studies, visual metrics, Pokeyoke systems, the Shingo Visual Workplace course, and this entire visual leadership suite and they'll be in standalone modules individual modules we'll suggest that you combine things and we'll suggest certain ways of clustering or batching them and they will be very affordable you can use them to learn for yourself or you can use them to teach others so we're very very excited about this i have a ton of work i love to put into form what i discover when i implement including uh, the failures, if you will. Every failure has produced another module because I need to sort out why that happened and what is created is another methodology. So it's time to get this stuff out, and we're very, very pleased. And we'll offer uh, a certain amount of those free to our membership because our website will have a membership portion. This is a dream that I've had for decades, and it's finally happening. And I want to thank the wonderful people who are helping to make it happen, Cindy uh, Cindy Linden, who is our executive administrator, Aurelia Navarro, who's been my editor for 35 years, Horatio Fairburn, who's in, who's in charge of our technical projects, Cherie, Alex, Alex Blyer, whom we actually were welcoming on um, into the conversation today, Rupert, Chris, and of course, Merlin, our cat, our cat, the many, the many who have helped. It's really quite spectacular. Did I mention Harold Hope? So please stay tuned to that. We are turning a corner. We're coming right at you. There's more, but we will fill you in as things unfold. So those are my announcements. Oh, and I'll be in the UK in December. I'm going to Scotland to the Grant's Whiskey Plant and to some other plant that is yet to be named. I'm really excited about that. Look for our website. Look at our website for for details. Yeah, that's right. And I'm doing a training of trainers next week on uh, the East Coast Uh, And uh, that's going to be excellent as well. So today we begin the second segment of my visual leadership system. As part of that, I will be talking with a special guest, Alex Blyer. Alex is an IT consultant and veteran of literally decades of IT project management. We're going to be talking about a particular model of assessment that was developed by the Software Engineering Institute, which is part of Carnegie Mellon. It was implemented, it was developed around 1989, 1990, produced many, many books. And it's about capability levels, or if you will, maturity levels. And the results of that study are worth our contemplation, as well as um, the 
as well as the um, reason that it was started. And this is part of the visual leadership series because in the leadership series, we're still going to do what we did last year. We're going to, uh, last spring, we're going to talk about the cultural transformation that leaders go through as they become better leaders. We're going to talk about the margin that leaders, in this case executives, need to find and to grow their own leadership capability and effectiveness. We're going to talk about visual leaders as visual thinkers, and we're going to talk about the seven elements as we did last uh, spring for supervisors. We'll do the same for executives. What a leader of improvement means for the executive. And I'll be walking you through the tools. The tools are different than the ones for supervisors. There'll be the business systems improvement template, the house, the X-type matrix, the war room stacked metrics will be a part of it. So that lies ahead, and I'm really thrilled about it. But today I want to start our discussion from the perspective of the organization. It's a little bit unorthodox. I want to start with this study that was undertaken over a quarter of a century ago, and it was ta- it was a study that was done not in a typical workplace that we've been discussing over these uh, these episodes over our time together. Instead, it was conducted in software in the burgeoning software fields of the 1970s and 1980, really when software and the web and the web were barely born, barely babies. The perspective of the study was also on the project level, not on the enterprise-wide level. So the view was particular to projects. And I want to tell you why I consider it useful to our discussion before we begin the discussion on leadership, why, why it is, I should say, why it was useful to our discussion on leadership and on visual leadership. I want to frame it this way. Leaders on the executive level need to know their organizations. They need to know where their companies are in terms of large strengths and large needs. They need to know their organization's next area of growth. Where does the organization need to grow in order to be more effective as an organization? But here's the glitch. Here's the link. Therefore, where do I need to grow? Where do I as an executive, as a plant manager, as a CEO, GM, VP, where do I need to grow? The executive has a particular point of view. In his foreground, he sees the company, warts and all. He makes an assessment typically based on his experience or what he has known before. This may be a construct, a model. It may be simply his life experience, time on the job. And out of that assessment, he makes observations, then conclusions, then decisions, and then he acts. He acts to move the company forward. This is not exactly commonplace, but it often happens that when a leader takes over, he looks to move the organization forward. But what, le- but what leaders rarely ask is, what is my next area of growth? Where do I need to become more effective? More often than not, the leader thinks that the skills and the profile that got her the job is enough to see her through to success, to a more successful organization, and success on a personal, professional level. 
the leader says, well, that's why they hired me. But that is rarely true. Most leaders lead to their strengths. They have very little understanding of their, may I say, deficits or not strengths. I'm trying to avoid the word weaknesses because it's not really a weakness. It's kind of like a blind spot. It's that story that I once told you about where the gymnast will go to a coach and depends on the, stre- the, the coach to find her strengths. And the great coaches do this. I remember watching an interview of this uh, from an Olympian coach. And he said, you know, when these very, very talented young women come, these gymnasts come, the first thing I ask them to do is to show me what they can do. And they show me something spectacular, the balance beam or the horse or the, the double bars. They show this to me and they perform and I make note of it. And then I ask them to show me the rest of what a gymnast does. And they show me that. And it is less spectacular. It's still excellent, but simply not on the spectacular level of where they excel. And then I let them, then I tell them to set aside what they do in a spectacular way and let's work on getting stronger in the areas where you have deficits, however slight they may be. And what happens is that the gymnast develops muscles to to bring that excellence forward and they already have strength in the other areas and I have a well-balanced, well-rounded, all-rounded Olympian. And that's what we're doing with the visual leadership. We're, we're taking the principles and practices of visual leadership and saying, where are your strengths and where do you have an opportunity for growth? So in introducing the Carnegie Mellon, that's where it was done, it's called the Software Engineering Institute, SEI, study to you, I'm introducing a framework that I want, I want you to contemplate. And as you contemplate it, we'll do this right after the break, I want you to keep your mind very, very active and very questioning. There are many, many frameworks to profile your company. Deming, Baldridge, SME, Shingle Prize, they are largely excellent. But sometimes they hold a trap. Sometimes their strength masks a deficit. This particular one has strength, but it also holds a trap. The one I'm introducing to you today, or perhaps you already know about it. I want you to listen for it. Okay, so we're going to begin that afterwards. I want to frame the discussion so you know that this is all about you as a leader identifying the organization so that you can identify your next area of growth, having a way to assess, knowing that you need to because that will be the mirror for you to get stronger. And I would posit that the practices and principles of visual leadership will be a great help. So we'll come right back after the, st- uh, after the break and we'll start our conversation with Alex Blyer. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. 
With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, welcome back. This is Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn Galsworth, welcome back to the second segment of the Visual Workplace today. So just before the break, we were talking about leaders lead to their strengths, but they sometimes have small understanding of what stands in the way of their being more effective. Deficits may be too strong a word, but nevertheless, there's areas to grow. So what we're going to be looking at today is an assessment framework for the organization. And as I also said, when, you, when we walk through this, I want to challenge you to find out what really is excellent about this framework and what the trap is. Because we won't talk about the trap until after we've presented the profile of this assess, assessment framework. And then... Uh, you and me and Alex, we will uh, muddle uh, and uh, work our way through that together. I shouldn't say muddle. There's another word that um, sounds like muddle. <laughs> I can't think of it. But at any rate, we'll suss it out. That, there it is. We'll suss it out together so that you can see. So that's a main purpose that I have today. So listen for it. Look for the flip side. Look for the implication. And I want to say almost Every framework, every method, every concept in the wide world has some aspect of this, some aspect of what I call Borg. Sometimes something that wants to eat your brain, hmm, 
something that something in the model or the method or the framework or the marketing that wants to eat your brain and call it its own and eat your pocketbook and call it its own Borg, almost everything we come across that has some aspect of marketing, some mask on it. There's no blame in that, either for the product that is trying to get into your hands or for your hands that are reaching for it. There's no blame. That's just the way of the world. But that doesn't mean we won't keep our eyes open and ask ourselves, you know that question, so what? So what? What does this mean? What does this really mean? What am I seeing? And what am I not seeing? Those two famous visual workplace questions. What am I seeing? What does it mean? What am I not seeing? What does it mean? And later, in a later show in the series, we will return to assessment frameworks. But today I want you to think about your organization and think about yourself. Okay? I want you to think about what growth means for you and your company the principles and practices of visual leadership for the executive will make a powerful contribution. You need to notice it. So we're going to get started on the study. The study was done by Carnegie Mellon, and our friend Alex Blyer was very, very close to the moment. Okay? So let me give you some background on Alex. Alex has over 40 years of of consulting experience in designing, developing, and managing computer software projects. He understands systems analysis, project management, process improvement practices. He understands them because when he started, they weren't there. (laughs) His clients have included many Fortune 500 companies, banks and brokerage firms and electrical utilities and manufacturers all around the country. He has witnessed and lived through many, many successful projects and many failed ones. Very interesting. He has insight into the historical evolution of success factors. Some people think of them as failure factors. Alex prefers to think of them as success factors. And he has witnessed the evolution of methodologies and best practices in software development. So welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. Hi, Gwendolyn. Thank you very much for having me on the show. (laughs) Thanks, Alex. So let's start off with our first question. I want to ask you to describe the situation that has triggered the interest of, I understand, the Air Force and then the federal government. Take us back 30 or 40 years. Well, Gwendolyn, this was um, in the early 60s and 70s when computers had, uh, large mainframe computers had entered the scene and companies were scrambling and, and very interested in developing large systems to automate their operations to um, more easily collect and analyze all the data involved in their business. These were not, you know, what we think of today as personal computers, individual productivity tools, so that the companies, what the companies were doing is collecting large amounts of data and processing them on these very large computers. So the companies that could afford these kinds of large-scale computers were building very large systems. And what I mean by that is these were projects that involve 50 people or more, and the projects might take four or five years or more to develop a comprehensive computer system. Previous to this, of course, they were doing all of this kind of work manually, and the amount of data that they could deal with obviously was very limited because of that. 
the computer comes along, suddenly we can do so much more. New worlds open up for business and industry. They saw the opportunity to automate and become more productive, and they went for it. They lined up projects to collect and analyze large amounts of data. The computers were good, but they had to be programmed. Software had to be built. So there were many large-scale projects started and launched by IT departments and banks, brokerage firms, utilities, government agencies, and the military. The Air Force. Is this where the Air Force comes in? Well, the Air Force um, was pivotal in this whole process because as these projects started to fail, these large-scale projects started to fail, the Air Force started to look at how can we prevent these failures? So, yes, some of the projects were successful, but enough of them ended up as failures that it was, it was important to look at uh, these projects across industry. And, of course, each individual company was only looking at their little piece of the pie. By launching and funding the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon, the Air Force was able to engage brilliant computer scientists who could look across industry, look across government at what were the processes and procedures used to create these large-scale projects? Mm. What were the success factors and what led to various failures? So, uh, Alex, can you give us some idea of the failure rate? I mean, was this really noticeable? Well, yes, Gwendolyn. Uh, up to 50% of large projects never got implemented. There were many factors, many reasons for these failures, and it was very important to sort this out and try to figure out what were the factors contributing to success. What wait, were wait, the wait, 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 50%. So let's just stay on that for a moment. So sure. what, what's a project worth? I mean, does it cost $100,000? Does it cost uh, $500,000? What would be the loss? And what would be the loss in time? Give us a sense of scale, please. Well, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. For a single it- project? For a single project, when you have 50 to 100 people working for a five-year period, um, you know, it amounted to $100 million or more. It's not just the people. It was all the computer installations. These computers cost millions of dollars. So there were a lot of resources tied up in these projects. And the failure rate was, did you say 50%? Yes, 50%. I mean, Gwendolyn, imagine if... Architects were building buildings, large, you know, fairly large uh, high-rises, skyscrapers. And after they were, they were completed, 50% of them fell down. You really <laughs> notice that. Kaboom. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit more difficult to see in the software industry because the software is invisible. You only see the results of the software once the software is operational you can see that you have a system, but before that, you don't see it. Hmm, 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 hmm. So the these organizations simply absorb the loss. Oh yeah, and you so know. they didn't say what are we doing wrong. They just said something like pull the project. Absolutely, absolutely. It was over budget, over time. Didn't fit the requirements that they asked for. Hmm. They'd cancel it. In one particular case, I worked at a company, very large, very large insurance company, 
that had an ongoing project for 13 years <laughs> before they finally made the decision to cancel the project. Oh what a stupendous loss in terms of money, effort, etc. I bet somebody took the, the hit on that one. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you can and you can imagine the work the work had to continue on a manual basis. You know, I mean the whole mm-hmm. the whole point of this what was to disaster. automate a whole bunch of business processes. A so disaster. meanwhile, not only was it a loss, financial loss, but Nothing a productivity loss. Wow, wow! You know what strikes me is that there are so many parallels during that period of time, the late seventies, the eighties, in manufacturing, where we were very um, taken by, very in love with the Toyota production system, sort of like these companies were dancing with computers, large mainframes, seeing them as uh, uh, saving the company and uh, um, uh, producing new levels of growth. And many, many companies in my field failed, and they failed individually. They simply couldn't get it going. They couldn't get it started. They couldn't hold on to it. They didn't know how it worked, and they they failed. It just strikes me that uh, this was a parallel um, improvement process, as it were, that was foundering and uh, nationwide. It took us quite a while. It took us quite a while to see ourselves. But please go on. What happened? So the study started. Please go on. Yes. you know, the study started in the in the late eighties and uh, early seventies, and they were they you mean were early nineties. Uh, early nineties, I'm sorry. No problem. And um, so they were able to analyze and factor out the reasons for success and various stages that different companies went through in their evolution, uh, in in terms of making the projects more productive and in terms of um, making allowing for or, or facilitating greater success in these projects. And that's the maturity levels model. Yes, yes. So let's pick this up right after the break. I can hardly wait. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick-and-mortar locations or traditional banker's hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and, of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. 
Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, host of the Costa Report every Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. This week, my guest is outspoken former congressman and one of our country's most prominent gay public figures, Mr. Barney Frank. He'll be with us to talk about the Supreme Court's ruling on DOMA and how the Obama presidency is doing in its second term. Don't miss Barney Frank this Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. on the Voice America Business Channel. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, welcome back. This is Gwendolyn. Welcome to the third segment of the Visual Workplace today. And I am having a conversation with Alex Blyer, who is a, a veteran of the IT projects war for many decades, three, four decades in the industry. And he's telling us about a time in software development where people were working to capitalize on this wonderful promise of the mainframe computers, but they were making mistakes and they were failing. They hardly knew that they were failing. They just tried out a system. It didn't work and they moved on. But someone, a group, had oversight. Finally, after a number of failures, and Alex, you tell me if I'm getting this wrong, a number of failures, the government uh, stepped in and uh, established at Carnegie Mellon the Software Engineering Institute and mandated them to find out what is happening, what can we do about it. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars are going down the drains, the drain, and on top of it, we're not getting the promise of this new capability that computers are supposed to deliver. So, Alex, just give us a little bit more on what that process must have been like. I know you were close to it, but give us a flavor of what it was like to look for something that hadn't a name yet. Well, Gwendolyn, they they really reviewed <clears throat> many projects. They discovered many things and many behaviors, uh, many activities. Um, you know, there were many strains and elements and many pieces to this puzzle. They they found tactical reasons why these uh, systems were failing, but they also uh, found strategic reasons. So they pooled and clustered and studied this. They looked for clues. They looked for patterns. Uh, these were fairly brilliant people that were working on this, but they also were very business savvy. So after a few years of analyzing this, all this project-related data, they collected a set of findings or discoveries. After about a year, they, they distilled these discoveries into a model, a framework of thinking. And it was a pretty tight model. And importantly, it was very practical, very logical, and, of course, very relevant to the whole process of building software. It turned out to be a model that allowed companies to examine themselves and not only predict the likelihood of success or failure, but it was sufficiently prescriptive for companies to use to reach higher levels of readiness before they undertook IT projects. 
The study, in a sense, produced a way to think about the factors contributing to success and failure, created a mental framework to understand how a project could be set up to succeed. And each year they fleshed this out with intermediate procedures, processes, and resources required for success. So they were putting together really a very complete model. They were, and they called this model the Capability Maturity Model. And they defined five levels. I know it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> um, and I know that your team calls it the proficiency model. Yes, yes. I want to. I want to give a. Sh- it's called a shout out to our colleague Horatio Fairburn, who's in charge of our technical projects. He came up with the term, and we like it a lot. We do. We call it the proficiency model, and it's an uh, it's an adapt it, it's an adapted model that helps us assess uh, and our clients assess their organizational readiness for visual implementation. It's a great predictor. So please go on. Tell us about these levels. Okay, well, imagine an upside-down triangle or pyramid, uh, the pointy face pointing down. Now, imagine five bands cutting horizontally across. Each of these bands represents a maturity level, with the least mature, the least advanced level uh, at the pointy end pointing down. The top of the model, the broad, long band across the top is the goal. The most mature, most highly successful organizations, the, one that, the ones that get the best results, most consistent results, are the one, ones everyone wants, wants to be like. So that's the at the top, and, we're, right. and, and, the, and the narrow part is pointing down, okay? Got yes. Um, so the narrow part pointing down is where most of the failures occur. So I'll walk you through each of these bands, okay. starting with the companies at the bottom that are struggling to make their projects succeed and often failing okay so at the bottom here's level where, one this is where at level one this is level one okay immature so, an immature little baby baby company <laughs> <laughs> well this is where you know companies have just started out uh using computers um they're building they might be building their first large-scale system or their second large-scale system and um usually the the um Companies at this level, if they experience success, they experience success because of, of uh, a great leader, a charismatic leader, someone with a lot of experience. But usually there was no design for the project that's just at this level. Often there was just a series of memos about the, what, what the company wanted the system to do and or hallway discussions with key members of the team. The engine that drove that kind of IT project was usually a single person with a particular outcome in mind. Mm-hmm. Absent that experienced charismatic project leader, the project would typically fail. Huh. So huh. the project was run usually based on the understanding of this key leader. It was all in his head. Yes. Hmm. And, uh, you know, very, lit- very little was, was written down. Um, and like I said, you know, typically there was no project there was no project plan. There was no system design. Was this the project? The, the thirteen was this a characteristic of that thirteen-year project you mentioned before? Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> wow. So you know, I participated in a few of these kinds of projects in the sixties and seventies. And you could spot them, couldn't you? If yes. Were- well, especially as time went on, as as we flesh out and talk about the maturity model, we'll see the characteristics. Uh, of more successful projects. So as a consultant, 
working on projects at different companies, you could immediately spot, um, you know, the, the environment that you were in and how, how much they knew um, about software development and what maturity level they were at. Mm-hmm. And you could very quickly uh, assess whether or not you thought this, this project was going to be successful. Even, even though the, the report hadn't come out, you, close to boots on the ground, could see it. And you right. probably uh, named it in your mind. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll give this three months. Honey, I, I'm going, this job is going to last for three months because they're <laughs> exactly. heading for a cliff. Okay, let's move to level two. <laughs> well, level two, level two um, typically a company at the second maturity level had a plan, outline of a plan. The leader knew where the project was supposed to go, and so did the project team. There was a kind of laundry list of tasks that needed to be completed. Um, perhaps there was a mapped out timeline and a project management system. There were milestones, mid-course outcomes. Mm-hmm. So this kind of thing made a big difference to lower the likelihood of failure, to make it less likely this, that this project would, be, would fall into that 50% of, group, of, of the group that failed. Mm-hmm. So introducing the project management plan written down, uh, shared with the project team, uh, this was progress, and it distinguished these kinds of projects from the ones that did not have a project plan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's our level two. So at level two, you know, what they found in their studies is that companies that, that utilize project plans that... Uh, explicitly articulated uh, the phases in the projects, the tasks that were required were were more successful. You know, statistically, more of these kinds of projects came to fruition. Mm-hmm. Ah, so in my field, it's called alignment or connectivity, that we're connecting the pieces. That's very nice. Go on, please. Well, at level three, um, company that was, you know, that was, that we identify as being at this more mature level, in addition to having the experienced leader, in addition to well-defined project plan, risk management plan, also had a well-defined methodology of what are the phases, what are the activities, what are all the tasks required to build a software project. So they followed uh, a methodology that... um, had been written down and that everybody agreed on that this is how you move forward to mm-hmm. create a software project. And so the researchers at SCI gauged that companies who had and followed a preset methodology, again, had a significantly higher success rate and, you know, a shorter time frame for completing the project. So they knew that too. They, they, they actually saw... As they continued their research, because I understand that SEI, a software engineering institute, is still functioning today. So they saw the compression of time. Yes. I just want to make a mention to uh, our listeners. You know, this sounds very much like what happened when we got the notion or the concept, the principle, if you will, the principle really of standard work. That when we introduce those prescribed procedures and protocols, the documentation, write it all down, the standard work, you know, identify those elements in the sequence and get out the waste in between. Basically, this is 
a kind of known science. It's it happened in manufacturing as well. Now it's help, happening in offices and then, and and in healthcare, spreading through government agencies that are um, uh, you know pretty transactional rather than um, uh, tangible product outcomes. So so that's very interesting. So so the. Um, this is pretty much, Alex, uh, uh, an exact parallel to the progression. But there's remember, there's a hidden trap in here, and I want to talk about it. We only have we're moving into our final break, Alex, and I need you to kind of move us through four and five because I want to bring the listeners back to what's the trap in this, and it's a trap that I see in manufacturing as well. So that's a very interesting third level. And uh, am I understanding that this is cumulative because you mentioned that there is also an experienced project leader? But it occurs to me when everything is written down, we are less dependent on the charismatic leader. Uh, really, anyone uh, who's capable can sit in that chair and at least make progress. I'm going to make that adjustment in my mind. Exactly. Mm. Very good. So let's go into our final break, and when we come back, give us four and five, and then let's powwow. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Alex. 
<laughs> Alex, hi. Hi. And hi, everybody else. Sorry, I was I was just thinking about the the trap. And welcome back, everyone. This is our final segment in the show today. It's the introduction to our series on uh, visual leadership, the executive function, and we are looking at an assessment model and asking ourselves: Do we know? how our company matches up against known criteria. Do we know our company's effectiveness, the strengths and the deficits in our company so that we can identify as leaders the next area of growth? What does growth mean to the company? And do we also know it for ourselves as leaders? So that's the kind of double question I posited at the top of the show. And we are moving through a software engineering model that happened in real time in the 1980s and 90s. And Alex Blyer is our guest today and uh, is bringing us, we're now on level four, soon to be level five, um, to round out the model. What happened next, Alex? Well, Gwendolyn, as, as the Software Engineering Institute surveyed these companies, they found that the ones that had more successes also had, in addition to the previous three levels, a fourth level, which really was all about quality assurance of having metrics, of identifying what metrics were needed to understand the quality of the work or the completion of the work at different phases of the project. Mm -hmm. So this was a big step forward. Mm -hmm. These measurement systems were in place. And these measures assessed the effectiveness of the methodology. They didn't wait until the end of the project to see if the system would fly or not. So they took many measures in process. Mm-hmm. And I think introducing quality metrics uh, is is a big step towards achieving success. No question, no question. Mm-hmm. So that's that is uh, the package of the fourth level. Simply yes. introducing a kind of uh, self reflection, yes, a, a self measurement project. A, Good, a, fee- a feedback loop so okay. that okay. Uh, management can uh, better understand. Is the project moving forward in a successful way? Okay. And let's move to five. So when, when they looked at companies that were highly successful at, uh, at developing software systems, what they found is that all of these practices, the project management, planning, budgeting, risk management, quality assurance, had been promoted across the enterprise so there was an, an enterprise-wide approach mm-hmm. to how to develop computer systems. It wasn't just one department that was doing it right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that was doing it with this higher level of maturity. It was across the enterprise. So they called that an optimization stage, and that was maturity level five. That was all grown up. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. That was highly proficient. Right. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank you. What an interesting study. Now, it isn't that it's breakthrough in terms of the profile, but what I love about this study is that people were completely blind to why these projects failed because they hardly knew what a computer was, let alone how to put the software together to 
uh, to harvest the capability of the computer. It must have been a, both a very stressing, stressful time and a very exciting time because the promise was there, but people were shooting, shooting themselves in the foot and the hand and the head, and they didn't even know it. You know, why does it hurt so much? Ouch. So let me uh, – uh, uh, we have just a few minutes left, and if you will allow me, Alex, I'm going to go on a riff here about here's the problem with the model, and here's the problem with every model. In my point of, from my point of view, here's the Borg part, the part that eats your brain if you're not careful, if you don't defend yourself. These kinds of models are very, very important – pardon me, I need a drink – are very important – because they give us a way of looking at the organization that creates some distance. But they must also give us a way of looking at ourselves. If we adopt these models hold hog, the organization can get rigid. There can be unnecessary and undue requirements to follow a model that has simply helped us. And because it helped us, because we... Uh, took it out for a date and maybe courted it for a year or so, doesn't mean we have to marry it. It doesn't need to become a way of life. We can learn that assessment, feedback loops, growing is important, but we don't need to marry the model and make people follow the model no matter what. I have seen this successful a few times but in a way that has been spectacular because when the success happened, there was a sudden change. And this was in uh, when Ford uh, – and actually when Delphi had a, a model that was a five-point scale and the guy was running at Battenberg who, was, who made a big mistake uh, – Battenberg – made a big mistake later on, but he required every single one of the Delphi plants, and there were, what, 100, 200 of them, to meet a model that had, if you moved up 0.2% in a year, that was considered successful. It was a very, very demanding model. But at the end of it, at the end of it, after people had learned how to create these outcomes, he threw the model away. He said, now you're capable. Now let's start doing things that are spectacular and that are different. You have to have a tremendous understanding of the strength of models, but also be prepared to throw them away so that you can go to your next level of growth. And that's my warning to you. For me, the tools of visual leadership for executives are the ones that ask the leader, how do you need to grow? And they have sufficient flexibility for you to map them to, as I hope you'll see over the next several months that we'll be together looking at uh, this progression, for you to take the organization and yourself to levels of maturity, if you like. And And the other thing that's so interesting about these models and also visual leadership is that they are a progression. It's really hard to skip levels. You have to be careful not to marry the whole model to stay very dynamic within it. But you also have to, in a way, pay the dues of the methodology of, the, of, of if you will, the five levels that you, you, know, you, you assess yourself against the level and then you move to the next and the next and you can't jump to the top if you're at one or two. Even if you're at three, you can't skip. You can't skip. So I think it's very, very interesting, and there's no discussing this without an, a leader and without an effective leader. 
So I'm uh, very, very interested to see uh, how we're going to uh, walk down this path together on visual leadership, the principles and practices for the executive. And I want to thank you, Alex Blyer, for uh, sharing with us the profile of this important study that the SEI group did uh, and is still doing at Carnegie Mellon. It was very, very interesting. Thank you thank so you, much. Thank you, Gwendolyn. Yeah, thank you, Alex. So thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. I'm going to be live every single week through Christmas until Christmas. That's my plan. That's my hope. And I hope you'll be here with me. We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.